Brandon, of course, sees my balloon head floating away and away. away. <laughs> he, he grabs onto it. And he's like, wait, Noah. Balloonie started floating away. I tried to reach out and grab him, but and I never saw Balloonie again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of Plot Devices. You know the movie This Is 40? I haven't seen it, but this is 40 for Plot Devices. We've made it. I guess we're old now. Um, uh, my co-host is Noah Guzman. He's also here. Noah, are you also old and frail? Brandon, it's the most voluntarily financially destructive time of the year. How do you feel in this holiday month? Spreading cheer, spreading joy, Spending all of your money on gifts. I'll tell you what, yesterday I had no like inclination to begin my holiday shopping. I was going to more, you know, the sentimental, also like inexpensive route here. But I was in a perfume store and I saw that they had a crazy deal. So I said, what the hell? I'll get this for both my moms. And so they are knocked off the list. Uh, but now I realize that I have to now do every family member and it's going to destroy me. But hey. It's the most wonderful, you know, we have to just keep repeating it to ourselves. Keep the Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You song on repeat, and we will be in good hands. Oh, get <laughs> um, out of there. Get out of there. Lot- hey, there's a lot of stuff going on this month. Um, there's some we're going to talk about, some we actually aren't going to get to in this episode. But, I mean, there's a special holiday material that is out, one of which that I wanted to just talk about top of show. A short little note. Did you watch the Guardians holiday special on Disney Plus? I haven't, actually. Oh, okay. So uh, we're talking some new trailers in today's news portion, and we're going to be talking the new Guardians movie, uh, but there is actually a holiday special out on Disney Plus now, um, most prominently featuring Drax and Mantis and Kevin Bacon. So if that intrigues you, go ahead and check it out. Um, Brandon, I'm sure you'll check it out in between this episode and the next. Uh, Maybe we'll have a discussion about it, but uh, plenty of news for us to dive right into. This is the episode where I get exposed as a fake MCU fan. I understand when I am. Um, but in the spirit of giving, uh, Comic-Con has been very giving, uh, as has just been the past couple of weeks, but specifically Brazilian Comic-Con in general, which gave us a lot of really major trailers to talk about. Uh, specifically, as you mentioned, our good friends, the Guardians of the Galaxy, are back to their normal shenanigans. In Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, it shows the third, and as James Gunn has claimed, the final, oh boy, chapter of this version of the Guardians, featuring the usual cast of Chris Pratt, Dave Bautista, Karen Gillan, Zoe Saldana, alongside newer, newer cast members, uh, Maria Bakalova from Borat, uh, Chipudi Iwuji from Peacemaker, and Will Poulter as a uh, famous character, Adam Warlock. That film will release in theaters May 5th. Secondly, we got a first look trailer at a Transformers Rise of the Beast, which is the seventh now Transformers movie. I'll fact check it later. Uh, it's the next installment of the franchise. It's a sequel to 2018's Bumblebee specifically, so it's a lot more 80s inspired. Uh, Creed 2 Stephen Cable Jr. will be taking over directing duties, although Michael Bay is still on here as a producer. We haven't gotten rid of him entirely. Uh, Anthony Ramos and Dominic Fishbach from Judas and the Black Messiah will be starring. That film will also release in theaters on June 9th. Finally, Indiana Jones is back on screen. Cue the music. It's already in my head. 
for the first look for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm not sure how I feel about the title, but we'll talk about it. Uh, Harrison Ford returns one more time as the titular explorer, now set in 1969 New York at the turn of the space race. John Reese davies will also reprise his role as Sala. Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Antonio Banderas, Boyd Holbrook, Mads Mikkelsen also star in the film, alongside new director James Mangold from, of course, uh, Logan, Ford B. Ferrari, uh, 310 Yuma, a bunch of things. That movie is set for release in theaters on June 30th. And that's not even all the trailers we got. We got the first trailer for Cocaine Bear, which is wild. Go look it up. Uh, we also got the first look at Elemental, which is uh, Pixar's new upcoming movie. A lot of cool trailers dropped in the past uh, week or two as far as we're recording this. Noah, primarily as these three Comic-Con trailers drop for highly anticipated, geeky, nerdy projects uh, and the return of Indiana Jones after more than a decade from uh, Crystal Skull, what of all of these stood out to you? Let's talk Indiana Jones, okay? This is like the nostalgia reboot, kind of like the sequels coming after so many years, even after we got Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, where we thought was going to be Indy's last hold on, on this character, or Ford's last hold on this character. We even got that hilarious scene number where we had Shia LaBeouf at the end of the pick up Indy's hat and put it on himself and everybody goes is Shia the new Indiana Jones and it went nowhere well, Harrison Ford is back for the dial of destiny and the quote that we hear in the trailer is um, Indy says I don't believe in magic but few times in my life I've seen things that I can't explain and we have a Mads uh, Mikkels, Michelson, Michelson um, Phoebe Weller Bridge and this, those three members of the cast are going to be what propels me towards this movie. Uh, do I think it's way past like it's relevant? Yes, but I mean, it's Indiana Jones. It's a character we all, I think, cherish for the time that it came out of the three. I will say my favorite is probably Temple of Doom. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, but checking out this trailer, it, it definitely, I think, is one of the more exciting and, uh, you know, it feels special compared to these other trailers. Uh, even some, even up against something like Transformers. I think it's five. I honestly don't know either. But um, although that one has so much action and like uh, new characters pushing it forward, it, it, there's not a lot to latch onto because I mean, we're bringing back Transformers who go into beasts. I thought we just did that with the dinosaurs, you know, the uh, age of extinction or dawn of extinction or rise of the planet of the bots of the apes. It's just so many hilarious titles. Um, but between these, uh, yeah, I think my ears are perked for the dial of destiny for sure. And then, um, guardians of the galaxy volume three, absolutely. It's a teaser, right? We, we did not get many story details. The most alarming quote comes from rocket when he says, you know, very, um, <laughs> very creatively, so much a power behind the writing of this script. He says, Peter, I'm done running. Rocket, where, who are you running from? Like, you can honestly place this in any trailer and it, you would have no clue as to what's going on. Um, Brandon, from these uh, new announcements, as well as like secondary trailers, we did get a new Super Mario Bros. Uh, movie official trailer um, what kind of comments you know what kind of concerns do you even have after you know receiving new material for these for these upcoming releases first of all you're a temple of doom defender we need to talk about that eventually um yeah it's obviously indiana jones is the one i'm most anticipating like i love raiders lost ark as much as anyone i think it's one of spielberg's best movies we'll talk about that later um temple of doom uh, uh, last crusade both have their place i very much enjoy them for what they are uh, and Crystal Skull is Crystal Skull. But I was very much intrigued by this because, you know, it's James Mangold coming in to direct this and who is a director who I absolutely adore. I hope he gets direct, uh, I hope he gets to talk about his directorial debut at some point. Um, he, he's an incredibly accomplished filmmaker and I was 
Very curious to see what he could do with a Spielbergian sense of adventure. And while I don't love everything about the trailer, I think it's paced a little weird. I think it's a little bit too reliant on the nostalgia of Indiana Jones. It's still really cool. Like the action bits look really great. It's shot really well. Uh, Harrison looks good. I think the de-aging stuff looks pretty good in just a few minutes we see it. Um, and, and yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge coming back. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen entering the cast. Uh, Boyd Holbrook, who I'm very interested to see him in this. And John Rhys-Davies coming back from Raiders, uh, from Last Crusade, I believe. Um, which is still weird that in 2022, we're still casting Welsh people to play Egyptians, but that's a whole another conversation. Um, Guardians 3 looks really good and really fun. I was not expecting to have as much fun with the first teaser as I did. Um, you're right. Rocket, if he's not biting it, he is in deep doo-doo and I worry for him. Um, everyone else looks pretty cool. We get the first shot of, um, uh, 2014 Gamora from Endgame coming back, which we're, I'm curious to see how they handle that red because that seems like just another thing that's going on. Um, and then as far as Transformers goes, Stephen Cable Jr., another really capable director, were following the trek of Bumblebee and taking the franchise away from Michael Bay, which I think is a good thing, uh, cause I really enjoyed Bumblebee. Uh, the trailer looks okay. Uh, some of the effects either don't look done or like a bit too cartoony. Uh, there's the whole like ending shot of Anthony Ramos getting out of the car and it looks just a little wonky. There's the whole like big fight sequence where everything looks a bit too rubbery, but like I, I like the looks of the Dinobots quite a bit. I mean, uh, Ron Perlman, I think, is playing the gorilla one. Uh, so I'm curious to see how he and Peter Cullen go back and forth because their voices are so freaking great. Okay, I want to just plant a little flag here for the Transformers discussion because tell me, are you a fan? Of the Transformers franchise? Yeah, like like from when Mark Wahlberg entered the picture, from when Shia held the held the baton. Like, what is your opinion of the Transformers franchise? And you can't even Bumblebee in this discussion. I have been kind of hit or miss with it up until Bumblebee. Uh, like, I didn't despise it like so many others did. I thought the first one was fine. I have I have fond memories of seeing the second one in the theater. I Dark of the Moon has a place in my heart. I think that movie's stupid, but it's amazing. Uh, and then the Mark Wahlberg, but I, I don't talk about those movies. Um, I just want to say that some Transformers, I think I might have said it on the pod before where I just said somehow it always ends up making it to my screen. Like I did invest my <laughs> yeah. time in the first one, Revenge of the Fallen, Dark of the Moon. Um, I think like Age of, is Age of Extinction the same one as like the last prime or is last night? The last night. Okay. So that's three, four, five. So this is six. This is Transformers six. Maybe. If, if no. you're counting Bumblebee. Well, you know, it's first one, Revenge of the Fallen, uh, Dark of the Moon, Age of Extinction, The Last Night, and then there's this one. So this is six. Well, no, so Bumblebee and then into this would be seven. If you don't count Bumblebee, it's six. Wow. Okay, this is seven. Okay, here's what I think is hilarious. Yes, there's Mecha Kong. You know, he comes back. It's Ron Perman. That is so exciting. Um, the quote is to Optimus Prime, of all the threats, you know, all of them, all of the threats, past and future so now we know like this is the biggest threat you know of course it is you've never faced anything like this oh my god i just i watch this and i go what what is this new threat you know what is the new global catastrophe that the transformers have to stop um they made a good call though casting anthony ramos i think that that is an excellent addition to this franchise um if he is manages to like um stay within it for this film and then maybe the next you know who knows when they're going to stop the transformers movies but uh i thought that that actually is a great call that is going to probably incline me to actually go check it out um but i just wanted to stop on that note because yeah transformers seems to be something that you know maybe as a mass we get tired of but they don't stop piping them out 
I, I think it's just crucial that they're bringing in new talent. They're bringing in Travis Knight. They're bringing in Stephen Cable Jr. I think as long as they try to make it something different than what people knew it was, I think it can survive. But you're right. There is kind of the thing of, oh, another Transformers movie, which is kind of ironic that we're pestering that at large and not Marvel. And it, it's a very weird discussion how franchises get looked at. And I think we can have this some other time. If the trailer gives people one more excuse to check out Anthony Ramos, I'm with you. Let's move on to our second topic, or should I say like 1.5? Because only Noah is going to talk about this. Uh, this I found kind of interesting. Uh, James Wan, uh, if any of you know him, you know, the man who created Saw, the man who kind of launched the Aquaman franchise, he is set to end his first look deal with Warner Brothers this year after his commitment to Aquaman 2. Many wondered if he would return to horror, as he did with, you know, uh, Malignant and a couple other things. The answer seems to be a pretty resounding yes. Uh, first reported on by the New York Times and now confirmed by Deadline, Wan is in talks to pair with none other than horror maestro Jason Bloom uh, to merge the respective production companies, Atomic Monster and Bloomhouse Productions, under Universal's distribution. Wan described the merger in the New York Times article as particularly exciting due to the resources that both companies could share uh, under, again, Universal's resources. Reportedly, both studios would maintain some sort of autonomy, but again, would collaborate more on uh, films, TV shows, movie, uh, podcasts, uh, and basically any media you can think of uh, is how one kind of phrased it. Uh, this comes, of course, as the horror explosion of 2022 has been happening. Uh, Barbarian, Scream, Smile, uh, Bloomhouse's own The Black Phone have been experiencing unprecedented amounts of financial success. We're getting Megan early next year from Bloomhouse as well. So it's an interesting time for both filmmakers. Noah, as our official horror correspondent on this show, what do you think about Juan and Bloom coming together? The two of them have been names to watch when it comes to the horror space. James Wan and his work within the Insidious franchise, even departing from that kind of, but keeping the same kind of branding with all of the red and all of the terror of like nightmare elements in Malignant, he included some of the nightmarish elements that we pulled from the Insidious franchise. It's like, I, I really trust James Wan and I think watching Aquaman, I forgot that it even was this like horror superhead in the industry because that's how well he applied his craft just to another genre. And um, to know that he's returning for the Lost Kingdom, of course, we're excited about. Yes, we're going to talk Jason Momoa later in today's episode as well. Um, but James Wan now paired with Bloomhouse um, to imagine them both um doing a team up like this is the if you're a horror fan this is the avengers of horror okay um we are going to see um so i hope some very original ideas or if they adapt any of their works um just as they did with the black phone having been based on a book i just can't wait to see it i mean um whatever they're going to be working on is definitely going to be a topic of interest for us on this show at least for half of us um i don't know if i'll encourage my co-host here to make it out to any of the pictures that they work on but hey i will be rallying behind each and every one um it's definitely something to watch i think it's worth your focus and uh wherever they put their efforts let's see what they create Let's move on to our third and final topic for the day. Uh, award season is happening. The Oscars are, of course, still a month away in terms of nominations. We're getting them in March. Uh, but several voting bodies have already started handing out their trophies. Uh, the Gotham Independence Film Awards, which are not as big as the Independent Spirit Awards. Those are, like, really the source for all independent film. But the Gothams obviously have their place in award season. They just were announced over Thanksgiving. Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once took home the prize for uh, Best Picture, with Charlotte Wells winning Best Breakthrough Director for Aftersun, which, side note, I need to talk about it at some point. I adore this movie. Um, also held yesterday, as of taping, the New York Film Critics Awards were the first regional body to hand out the trophies, at least to my knowledge. Uh, Todd Phillips' Tar, which we actually, which I actually did a solo review on the show. You can go check that out. That won their best picture. But most notably, and the reason I wanted to bring this up, uh, in terms of best director, we have a lot of contenders this year. 
their best director trophy went to SS Rajamuli, aka the guy who did RRR, which we also reviewed on the show. If you want to go check that out, Brandon. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry for interrupting you, but go, I'm go. learning this. I'm learning this just as you are reading it. You don't read the notes. Holy, hey, 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 hey. I read every note. Do I remember them? Hell <laughs> no. <laughs> it is not until we were recording that all of this is news to me. Um, R R R already getting that kind of recognition. Um, I'm so sorry to interrupt Brandon, but I just like flipped out when I just heard you say those words. Well, I only had one more really thing to bring up before I toss to you, which is that as was pointed out online, uh, New York Film Critics winners, while not the you know de facto defining thing for the Oscars, that's much more the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes, you know, we'll get awards watch as we go on, you know, in the coming months. But as was pointed out to me, New York Film Critics winners for director have been nominated for Best Director at the Oscars more than half the time. I think it's like 16 or 17 out of the last 22 since the new millennia started. So I wanted to pose the question to you, while this is not an end-all, be-all, we have a long way to go before nominations get announced, does this bode well for RRR in the major categories? Oh my gosh. And here we were we were putting it up, you know, most, um, most I guess, hopeful in the original song category but to have another um you know a director from outside the states come in and be a contender for the top award in best director i mean color me hopeful i am yes i'm a person who looks towards things and just wants to cheer for them and rally behind them so um it's no different if we see ss rajamali for um, a nomination in best director that would be astounding uh, i did want to pause for the two titles here that i recognize um you did mention after sun the two i want to talk are everything everywhere you know even since our discussion on that earlier this year believe it or not i've only seen that movie all the way through once and i'm going to need oh. to do a rewatch if if we're going to consider um doing a best of the year stay tuned i i need to re-experience that movie and then tar you know we had a discussion on tar you did a solo review for it here on the show your i feel as though your takeaways were more so praising of uh kate planchett in her role as the as the lead character but did you are you surprised with this uh best picture win here Honestly, a little bit, just considering that I didn't see the nominees for New York Film Critics. I think they only released the winners. Uh, but it is fascinating to see how Tar has been doing beyond Blanchett's performance. I kind of assumed it would be very much a one-note thing. But no, like Todd Field's been getting a lot of claim for directing and writing. There's been a lot of editing talk. Um, I've seen a lot of videos for uh, Nina Haas in terms of supporting actress. So, like Tar has been kind of one of those awards contenders that I originally pegged as being one thing and has kind of evolved into a different thing. I want to make clear. I understand why you gathered it from that because Kate Blanchett is immaculate in Tar, but I do think Tar is genuinely a freaking phenomenal movie. I think it's incredibly challenging and diverse and just really unlike any kind of singular character study that I've seen in recent years. So to see it getting this acclaim, I'm, I have no problem with it. Um, although it is interesting, I just want to point out from the other New York Film Critics uh, winners, because a lot of them were fairly conventional, like Colin Farrell won for Benches of Sharon, Kate Blanchett, Kehoe Kwan won for Supporting Actor, but Kiki Palmer was their Supporting Actress pick for No which is also an interesting, like, could Nope be getting a late awards push? Even going back to the Gothams, you know, there's the idea of, like, Danielle Deadweiler winning for lead performance. Like, it's a lot of things where, like, for me as an awards nerd, kind of consuming that and being like, could this push this thing up? And how much does this thing matter? And I, I find it fascinating. And that's going to wrap our news portion for today's 40th episode. This is 40. 
Uh, we are going to move on now to our quick hit portion of the show. If you listen to our show, you know what it is. We deliver um, a piece of news that we could not fit into our bigger news portion of the episode. Deliver it to you in a minute or less. We more than likely are going to go over, but hey, who's counting? Not you. We are. We are going to post these quick hits to our TikToks so you have a visual reference to what the chaos looks like when we try to ramble on about a news topic for a minute. Um, I will begin with my quick hit in three, two, one. Hello, everybody. We're talking Wednesday and its immense success on Netflix. Here's what's news. The viewership of Netflix's Wednesday during its first week on the platform tops that of Stranger Things Season 4, another Netflix giant. Um, reportedly from The Hollywood Reporter, the show drew in 341 million viewing hours throughout its first week, and it currently holds the best week ever for an English for an English language series. Um, that is going to be the quickest hit of other details I can tell you is just that it centers around the character of Wednesday, who is the daughter um, in the Adams family. Uh, you may know of the family. You may have watched the animated film. These are familiar characters. And to see Jenna Ortega take on um, the title role of Wednesday Adams in her own Netflix series is just tremendous. I'm sure you've seen the dancing clip. Um, I'm going to end this with early time and boom. Brandon, tossing over to you because I included a detail of this being the best week ever for an English language series. Now, if this were all languages, can you guess what holds the top streaming week for a Netflix series? It has to be either Squid Game or Money Heist, right? Oh, okay, well, well, hold on. There's no. I, I said, can you name the one? Can you? Oh, name okay. The one? I, then my guess will be uh, Squid Game. Yes! Ding, okay, ding, 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 ding. Um, if we're talking all languages, it would be the Korean language Squid Game. So Wednesday drew in 341 million viewing hours, whereas Squid Game, a whopping 571 million streaming hours. Um, this is a, this is very surprising news because I find that uh, Stranger Things, as big as it is and as like um, all encompassing, like with audiences that it draws in. I didn't expect the same pull from a show like Wednesday, but having checked it out myself, it's lovely. It is dark. It is hilarious. And Ortega really is solidifying herself even further as like this, this strong up and coming actor. Um, I say up and coming, but she's already made it, you know, to, to major roles. Uh, I can't wait to continue following her and see what kind of work she takes on next. Brandon, over to you. On to my quick hit in, let me get the camera set up in three, two, so I guess I've shifted to awards commentator now. No, I deeply apologize for what the next couple months are about to break. Also, Gold Derby hired me. I swear I'm qualified. Also, in all seriousness, if you remember last year's Academy Awards, and there was a lot to remember and enjoy about that, uh, there was a lot of conversation about on this very show and many, many other places online about how eight categories, original score, makeup and hairstyling, documentary short, film editing, production design, animated short, live action short, and sound were all being cut out of the live Oscars telecast. People were not happy. Now, an exclusive interview with Variety, that decision is being reversed, and all 23 categories will, in fact, be broadcast at the 95th Oscars. This is a statement from Bill Kramer, the CEO of the Academy. This is very much what the mission of the Academy is, and I am very hopeful that we can do a show that celebrates all components of movie making in an entertaining and engaging way. He also praised uh, Jimmy Kimmel, who was coming back to host again for the third time, uh, saying it's good to have someone experienced in live television as uh, someone in the host. And it will apparently set the stage for the 100th Oscars, which are just around the quarter in 2028, which is a sentence I never thought I would say. The 95th Oscars will broadcast on ABC on March 12th. I've gone over time and time. Brandon! woo Yes, we are finally we, we are, won. We are giving the recognition to every category 
every creator and their hard work. Um, looking at the final picture, you don't just show up for the director, the cinematographer, you know, the best actor categories. There's so much other work and push. And I'm so happy that now this decision has been made because how wild that we would, you know, we rank these above others, but really it's just, it's all hard work that we want to recognize. And we want to, we don't want to undermine anyone's, um, any one member's success. And so this is, this is a big win, I think, for any film fan, any, any film lover and to all the productions that have been, um, now being able to experience this change. We have heard seemingly good things from the Academy before that have not panned out. So I am holding a bit of trepidation. However, Bill Kramer has apparently, in his defense, tried a lot of things to, like, reform the Academy and make it better and, like, embrace the diversity behind it, something that a lot of other producers had not done. So, and again, like, the move behind it is just necessary. Like, as you said, we went on tirades last year. There were campaigns. They mentioned it in the freaking ceremony. And it was so jarring last year to have to, you know, go to the stage and see them and the awards and then just get back. Like, give people their worth, as you mentioned, like, acknowledge the crafts. And I'm, I'm glad the Academy are taking that direction. I will absolutely keep you on as the awards show correspondent. That is a place that you, that is a corner that you shine from, Brandon. That has been today's quick hit portion of the show. We are now transitioning into the review section of the show. We're talking three titles on today's episode. We are doing one solo review from Brandon. It is going to be The Fablemans. And then we are talking two new releases. We have Slumberland, a Netflix release. And then we're wrapping with the adapted film Bones and All. Brandon, did you want to begin with a synopsis of The Fablemans? This is Steven Spielberg's newest movie. This is a basically mostly autobiographical take of Spielberg himself and his life and his childhood, specifically growing up between New Jersey, Arizona, hey, that's where we are, and California as well. Uh, we pick up in 1952. We have a Jewish couple, uh, Mitzi and Bert, played by Michelle Williams and Paul Dano. Uh, their family, they have three daughters. Uh, Mitzi's mother, Tina, played by Roman Bartlett, also lives with them, as does Seth Rogen as uh, Benny, a.k.a. Uh, Bert's best friend who he works with, uh, Bert... Uh, Bert is a computer engineer. Uh, Benny works alongside them. Mitzi is mostly a stay-at-home mom who is also an incredibly accomplished piano player, which comes into play later in the film. But none of those characters matter, and yet they do. Uh, we follow Sammy, played by relative newcomer Gabriel Labelle, who I think is pretty excellent in this. Uh, as Sammy Fableman, a kind of stand-in for Steven Spielberg at this time in his life, he uh, is brought to his first movie, which is The uh, Greatest Show on Earth, he sees the infamous train crashing scene and he is scarred for life because he's a five-year-old. And as a five-year-old who was scared by movies, I got the same thing. But unlike just, you know, crawling into his bed and crying about it, he actually does something with it. He takes his dad's Super 8 camera. He asks for a uh, train for Hanukkah. And with that camera, he makes his first movie, which is essentially a recreation of that train crash. We then pick up several years later where most of the movie takes place with Sammy in now high school. Uh, Mitzi and Bert's marriage is going through things. Uh, Benny has a role to play in that. There's also the arrival of a eclectic uncle played by a Judd Hirsch. But the movie mostly focuses on how does Sammy grow up in between different areas. His family moves to Phoenix first for uh, his father's tech job, then later to California. And we get a sense of how does an explicitly Jewish family in the mid-50s to early 60s you know, survive in those things. They deal with a lot of anti-Semitism. And how does Sammy come up as both just, you know, a young man? He gets his first girlfriend, who's played by uh, Chloe East. He has to deal with, again, a lot of his sisters. And again, just his general love of filmmaking. We see him make his first, like, war movie. Um, we see him make a Gunsmoke parody called Gunsmog, which he shows all of his Boy Scout friends. And we just get to see how a filmmaker kind of develops from such an early age, from what could be such an overwhelming experience, both in his life and externally. I will admit, I went into this movie a little trepidatious, 
Uh, for context, I adore Steven Spielberg. I think he's, if not my favorite director, one of the top three favorite filmmakers I have right now. I think so much of what he does is just excellent and emotional and just really all understanding of what the craft of filmmaking can be and pushing the boundaries of that. But I was worried because at the end of the day, this is a movie about an incredibly com- accomplished A-list Hollywood filmmaker making a movie about himself and how he loves movies. And that can be really dissuading to a lot of people. And I've talked to some people who kind of, you know, shove the eye at it of, oh, you know, it's it's Spielberg being cocky and, you know, kind of shoving his past to the side. And I have to say two things. First of all, I adore this movie. I genuinely love it. I think it's phenomenal. But I also don't think it's that. Like, Spielberg doesn't, and I should also give credit to uh, Tony Kushner, who's been his co-writer for a while. Uh, they co-wrote West Side Story last year. Uh, I believe they also did Munich. Um, but Kushner really knows how to bring up a lot of the more darker tendencies of some of the characters that I don't think Spielberg, you know, five, ten years ago would have. And it really does shine through here. Like, I want to bring up Gabriel Lavelle, who, again, Spielberg has been known for finding, you know, child performers before, you know, Drew Barrymore and E.T., uh, Rachel Zegler just last year with West Side Story. But Gabriel Lavelle is fantastic in this. He really just embodies, and I should also mention uh, Matteo DeFord, who plays the younger version of Sammy as well. But Gabriel Lavelle in particular, is just given a really fascinating character who is going through, yes, all of the, you know, nuts and bolts of what a, you know, 15, 16, 17 year old would be going through. You know, he's coming of age, he's finding relationships, but he's also really just developing as a craftsman. And when you see Sammy in the very first few moments in the movie, in what might be one of the more gimmicky and schmaltzy bits of dialogue, there's a whole bit where Bert and Mitzi are describing to him what a movie is, because he has no precedence of that. It's, you know, the 50s young kid. But it brings together a great kind of dichotomy between his parents. His father is an engineer. He's more logically sound. He wants, you know, Sammy to be an engineer and, like, make something of himself. And Mitzi is artistic and passionate and spontaneous and kind of gets the idea of, like, you know, as you see in the trailer, movies are dreams. And, like, they can be anything and merge into anything. And Sammy takes both of those things to heart. You really see the progression of that. You see him kind of poking holes in film to, like, make gunshot effects or, you know, talking to actors in certain ways that maybe, you know, his mom would kind of bring out emotions in him. And there's a whole progression in the movie that's just really fascinating beyond a lot of the anti-Semitism stuff as well. There's been a lot of discussion in how, you know, I don't know about Gabriel LaBelle, but I know that both Michelle Williams and Paul Dano are not Jewish. They're playing explicitly Jewish characters, whereas Seth Rogen is Jewish and is not playing an explicitly Jewish character, which I find it weird that Spielberg, who is someone who has always been very active and very open about his Jewish identity, made that specific choice. But I'm willing to forgive it just a little bit because both Michelle Williams and Paul Dano are great in this. I know there's been a couple of detractors saying, oh, they're miscast, they're schmaltzy and everything. I don't think so at all. I think Dano is doing a lot of heavy lifting, specifically in the second half of the movie, where if you know any of the history around Steven Spielberg's parents' divorce, there's a lot of truth to this story about um, where that divorce comes from. I won't spoil it in case you aren't familiar, but Bert has to kind of play both sides of it. He is masking himself, but you don't know why he's masking himself. Is he doing it because he feels comfortable in being closed off, or is he doing it for the good of his family? Versus Mitzi, who is always open to emotion, who is always willing to you know experience new things but who is also very flawed, who, you know, brings home a freaking monkey when she feels sad, not realizing that the family has no means to take care of that monkey. Or when she uh, when she tries to hide the uncle from the family, not knowing that that uncle who... Judd Hirsch is brilliant as the uncle, by the way. He shows up in like two scenes and he's so much fun. But that becomes a really driving force to Sammy and that idea of you love your family, you love them to death, you want them to be the best for them, but you love art just a little bit more and your editing machines and, you know, all that stuff. And there's a drive to you that your mother had and you know, why she's felt so sad and there's kind of a depression to her life. 
there's so many facets to this movie that I just found really, truly fascinating beyond just the emotional pull of it. Like when the movie wants to get legitimately emotional, I did tear up. I got to say this with my mom and she didn't cry. Hi, mom, if you're listening. I saw her on the verge of it a couple times and I was definitely on the verge of it with her. Overall, it's it's definitely long. It's definitely schmaltzy. I will completely concede that's maybe one of Spielberg's more cheesy efforts. Like if you can't get into the dialogue and you can't get into the idea of like, this is a 50s and 60s family who, you know, has the positivity behind them, who who definitely has a look of a certain way. And Spielberg and his cinematographer, uh, Yanis Kaminsky, shoots the hell out of it. But it's definitely of that time and feels very specific. If you can't get into that, I completely agree that, you know, it might not be for you. But my God, it totally worked for me. I was completely driven in by the performances and the emotion and the story and just really rang true to where Spielberg came from, where he is now, and where filmmakers like them and people who understand the value of what art can deliver can really bring. I have two questions here. Uh, somebody like Spielberg. In this film, he joins up with some familiar um some familiar creators as well in Janice Kaminsky, as you say, the cinematographer or director of photography, who they just worked together on Spielberg's last film, West Side Story. Visually, does this film make some big swings that you think are reminiscent of what we saw in West Side Story or what really like impacted people once they saw that film? Because I remember a film like West Side Story has to be immaculate with the visuals. How did the Fablemans come across? You know, it's funny because I remember this review that you and I and Sam talked about for West Side Story. And I, I kind of criticized Yannis and cinematography at that point. I was being a dick. Like that movie is really well shot and does a lot of like really creative things. I think the Fablemans put that into perspective more because the Fablemans, I think, strives more on its editing. Like Michael Kahn and Sarah Brosher edited this. And there's a lot of really creative choices of where they choose to put the frames and where they choose to actually line up different shot compositions. Whereas Yannis is... You know, he's still doing the thing of like dripping things in like different fades of light. It's very, you know, yellow and blue centric. Um, but like it does look great. It looks, you know, as usual. It's just not as adventurous. Like West Side Story has like the dance scene and like the fight scenes. And th- there's things that I go back to and I'm like, wow, that's actually really creative. Why did I criticize him for that? When like this, it's standard, but I think it kind of has to be. And of course, teaming up here again <laughs> from Isla Nubar, um, we are talking John Williams on yes. the score. Please, uh, do you have notes here for what it what it felt like to experience a, now a new film with Williams and Spielberg teaming up once more and delivering a full picture to you? What were your takeaways? It's amazing that John Williams is 90 um, and still making really interesting things. Like, this is a very minimal score. Uh, it's a movie where a lot of the score comes from Mitzi's piano playing or you'll hear certain motifs in the background, but it won't be that often. It's not a movie that relies on a score. But I think in the way that it's utilized and what Williams has to deliver, it feels very personal. Like every bit of piano, like every key in there, it just feels so precisely placed. It feels like Williams and Spielberg maybe had the most extensive conversations that we will never know about of just like, you know, this is a movie about life and about family. And I don't want the technical craft to really get in the way. I think Williams really brings to sense a sense of minimalism that I haven't heard from him in a while. And it was kind of refreshing. You did touch upon some of the social commentary that it comes that is included when it comes to um, being a Jewish creator throughout this time. Um, did you feel like it actually came across as balanced with this dream that he may have to exist in the industry? Do you feel like it balanced those two points well? With the actual anti-Semitism, a lot of it happens at school um, with a lot of supporting characters. Uh, Sam Reckner pops in here as one of the bullies who kind of puts him uh, through hell and a lot of that. And I really found that a lot of the dialogue that ranged from, yeah, that's about true to, 
oh, I've definitely experienced that. And you really have too. And it, it goes to that really deep, you know, traumatic core of like what a lot of anti-Semitic abuse can feel like and how innocent it can feel to people who aren't exposed to, you know, that background. And I think Spielberg's cognizant of that, which again brings the question of like the casting decisions. I'm really like weirded out by it. But again, it, it actually does the dialogue and the thematic ideas of it quite well. And I was just really, you know, obviously affected by it, but in a good way. Can you go ahead and give us your rating? Yeah, for me, I want to say nine and a half so bad. I, I love this movie and I love so much about it. And it's, spoiler, it's probably going to be somewhere very close to my top 10. I just love it that much. And this is truly emotional. It channels a lot of what I think Spielberg is best at. Again, Gabriel Lavelle is a freaking triumph. Michelle Williams is probably going to get nominated and she deserves it. Judd Hirsch steals the movie. Um, the technical craft behind it is absolutely there. It's, you know, his regular team and it absolutely comes through. But I think it's just the emotional aspect of it. And again, I cannot reiterate enough the idea of beyond any of that, the idea of looking at a piece of art when you're at such an impactful age, seeing what it can do from you and trying your damn hardest to replicate it, which Lord knows I have done on more than a few occasions. I think every artist has tried on at some point in their lives. And the movie really brings that forward more than any sense of like, look how great Spielberg is. Look at the, you know, that shot is foreshadowing E.T. Like it does that, but it does so much more than that. And I think it's not getting praised enough for what it's trying to do. The Fablemans was not on, it didn't make the top of my watch list in recent weeks, but hearing your review, if you're an artist and you're taking in this film or you're some kind of creator and you have that passion behind you, based on what you're saying, this film should speak to that. So, I mean, that's, you speak, uh, your final points there reminded me of the impact that Tick, Tick, Boom had on me. And that was my number one last year. So, um, yes, absolutely. Is that bumped up on the watch list? So thank you. We're going to move now and transition to the streaming platform of Netflix. And we are talking the um, family adventure film that just dropped. It stars Jason Momoa, and it is called Slumberland. Uh, my good friend and co-host here, Brandon, will go ahead and provide a summary of the story for you. Yeah, y'all thought we were going to talk about Disenchanted. Uh, anyways, Slumberland. Uh, this is the newest project from Francis Lawrence, who you might know from the uh, Keanu Reeves Constantine movie, uh, but also from the Hunger Games movies. He directed uh, Catching Fire and the two Mockingjay movies, uh, as well as Red Sparrow. Anyways, uh, this is his newest movie. Uh, his team up with Netflix. Uh, I should mention this is based on the Windsor McKay novel, uh, Little Nemo. Marla Barkley stars as Nemo. She is a young girl uh, living in a lighthouse with her dad, Peter, uh, here played by Kyle Chandler, who pops up briefly throughout the movie. Um, they have this really quiet, serene life. Her mom isn't really in the picture. And then really early on in the movie, uh, Peter passes away, um, seemingly on like a expedition to go out and help some sailors who have been lost in the lighthouse. She then gets sent to the big city to go live with her uncle Philip, here played by uh, Chris O'Dowd. And she kind of hates it. She's brought to this like preparatory school where everyone has, you know, laptops and phones and does like a million different things. And She's very sporty and just kind of wants, you know, she wants to go back to the lighthouse. She wants to run it, you know, with her dad. She wants her dad to be there. And she co she kind of consults to her own dreams. And she finds a place called Slumberland, which is, for lack of a better word, the dreaming from the Sandman, although not as interesting. Um, we then pick up with her and a character named Flip here, played by Jason Momoa, who is kind of this... Imagine like a mix between like the Duke and Dick Van Dyke from um, uh, Mary Poppins. Like that's kind of where you're going with it. Uh, along with like Jason Moe's usual swaggerific, you know, charm and everything. He is very much kind of out of his own mindset. He's kind of going through life. He doesn't remember who he was, as he calls him, the waking world. The whole thing is that if you're in Slumberland, you have a companion in the real world, but he doesn't remember who his is. Um, and he partners up with Nemo because there's apparently these magical pearls that if you get a hold of them, you get one wish for anything you want in Slumberland. 
Nemo wants to, of course, see her dad again. Flip wants to know who he was in the real world. And it kind of goes back and forth between, you know, Nemo just trying to stay asleep for as long as she can, avoiding her responsibilities in the real world, and going back into Slumberland into these magical uh, universe-hopping adventures alongside Jason Moe as this, you know, weird eclectic character. Noah, I put this on the list because I heard no one talking about this, and I remember hearing about it initially and thinking, this sounds fascinating. Um, and it does reminisce a lot to things like, you know, Phantom Tollbooth or a Monster Calls, kind of the, you know, child running away from things into fantasy kind of genre that we've seen a million times before. Did this do anything interesting for you? Yeah, it really did. Uh, after wrapping this film and <laughs> drying the tears off my face, yeah, it gets emotional. Um, yeah, it has weight behind it, and I didn't expect it to. I mean, I, we've, I've been on the show before. You know, I've, I've laughed hysterically at, like, the children's films that we've <laughs> reviewed, like the family films. Oh, my gosh, do I still find, like, surprises in them, though? Because Slumberland, to me, I knew I wanted um, to include it because... Jason Momoa picking up this, you know, in my head, it's the Mad Hatter of characters, right? Like, like you say, someone who's very of their own nature and just kind of like guiding you on an adventure, but not entirely like bringing you into their perspective. Um, there are plenty of things that this is reminiscent of. I'm going to drop the hilarious ones now. Loki, um, <laughs> it's reminiscent of Stranger Things. And I'm talking Loki, the Disney Plus series, um, Stranger Things. And then now that you mentioned the, the stark differences between, um, you know, our main character's infatuation with the dreamland as well as, uh, you know, running away from her issues and trauma of the waking world. Uh, we're going to use Sandman terms here. Um, reminiscent of the matrix. Like <laughs> it got, it gets me thinking about everyone waking up. Um, they even feature scenes where people wake up from their dream state and go back into the living world, which I, um, admired, but no, what does this movie uh, bring to you for one? a nearly two hour runtime that just picks up and goes. I don't think that this movie has a very slow or dull moment throughout. Um, feel free to disagree with me if you do have qualms, Brandon, but I saw this as a example of Momoa's range, you know, as Momoa embodies this character of flip, this like just this entity in the dreaming world, I was watching him and yeah, he's got the charm. You say swagger and just the, the fun, like I get 100% commitment to the character from Jason Momoa in this role. It was reminiscent for me of like, these are great characters I'm going to drop right now, but this is just what I got, right? I got Jim Carrey doing the Grinch. I got Mike Myers doing the cat in the hat. Like it's very, yes, like children's story type of character. That's just all about um, the chaotic fun. And I really admired him there. You know, he was making me laugh and uh, he's kind of an ass to Nemo uh, here and there. And I, I just love when characters do that. I mean, we saw it in um, the Adam project where the older uh, Adam just does not care about the younger one. Um, I love that approach when we have like these adult and child actors in the same scene together. They both definitely have um, the chemistry to hold a scene together. I've not seen Marlo Barkley in recent memory in anything else, but here I, I did enjoy her performance of Nemo, um, a character who is orphaned so early on in this film and is, has to go and live with her uncle who she has not really ever met um, except for in stories from her father and the relationship that those two develop with him being a doorknobs, like aficionado, right? Like he's a doorknob salesman. Um, I found it endearing. You know, there are pieces of this film, like I said, that have weight to it. And I was surprised when it worked. But um, who, who, I mean, you might be the same viewer as me where you watch something and you really are investing like your emotions to it. But if you're just watching this off, uh, off of surface level, 
even then, I think this movie packs in some interesting visuals. Um, we go into the dreamland and we see everything, you know, being made out of like butterflies or nightmares being embodied with like smoke and darkness looking like giant octopus. Um, I think that's a big word coming out of this film. Uh, Brandon, what were your takeaways once it closed or once it wrapped? I should say, I did actually, now that I look it up, I did recognize uh, Marla Barkley from, she was just in Spirited. She played the uh, young daughter in that movie, uh, which I actually found pretty delightful if any of you want to check that out. I don't know if we're going to review it in the podcast. Um, this was interesting. Like anything Francis Lawrence does, I'm curious about since Hunger Games. I think he brought a really interesting sense of style and pacing to those movies. Uh, Constantine, you know, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Like I love that movie. I think it's great. Um, and Jason Momoa has been making a lot of really interesting choices post Game of Thrones, post Aquaman. I feel like Aquaman kind of got to his head a little bit in that idea of, you know, him as a king and that kind of, yeah, bro. I feel like that kind of got to his head a little. But, you know, with Momoa taking on the Aquaman character, I like that he didn't lose himself to that yes. to that performance. You know, that this was the performance that he needed to pull out at every stop because he could easily become, he could easily become like other actors that we see in the industry who kind of have that hit and they take that character and just like mask it with a new name, um, new story. But here I, I did get something different from Momoa. Did you? He's very good in a movie that I'm not as positive about as you. Um, and I, I want to say, like, I, I actually didn't hate this because I thought I got like a 35, 40% on Rotten Tomatoes and I was like, oh boy. And I get it. There are things about this movie that I don't care for. Like, it's two hours long. I think it could be at least 10 minutes uh, shorter. Like, even with the kind of whimsical wonder of the worlds they develop. And credit to production designer Dominic Watkins for making some really interesting worlds for these characters to inhabit in Slumberland. Like, you get a whole thing where it's like a salsa dance setting where, like, all the people are made of flowers, or you get, like, this really cool cityscape that's, like, made of glass. And there's a lot of really cool images in there. Um, I did find the physics of Slumberworld a bit weird. Like, there's a whole thing of, you know, they kind of build it up for one of the big mysteries of the movie. Like, who was Flip in the real world? Like, what was his life? And, you know... And, you know, oh, if you die in someone else's dream, you die in real world. But if, you know, you die in your dream, you're fine. But at the same time, there's this whole, like, bureau of dream police, one of whom is played by uh, Wurichiopia. And we don't know for sure if they have waking world counterparts. They never really say. Um, there's not really a thing in there. There's also... Random, like, it's TVA. That's what it is. Well, okay. Yes. When the Loki comparison came out, I was like, it's basically the TVA. But there's that thing of, like... In terms of world building, are these, you know, are these people real people who are just falling asleep and do they just dream their cops every night or is it a creation of Slumberland? There's also the thing of nightmares, like are the nightmares people too and they just dream their nightmares? Like there's a lot of physics about the world that don't really add up to me, especially the whole thing of like there's a joke later on about a certain dream that people have that, you know, is super common. And then when it happens, it's, it's actually really funny. It's one of the few times I laughed in the movie. But when it happens, I kind of brought to mind of, well, if this is the thing that's happening and it's, you know, you're allowed to do this thing, what isn't allowed to happen? Because there's very clearly rules in here. So it's a movie that wants to kind of have it both ways of being like a Matrix Loki thing where it's like there's strict rules. And then the thing like Sandman, you know, slash um, like Phantom Tollbooth, where it's like it's the dreams and anything can happen. And that kind of irritated me to an unfathomable degree. <laughs> You are drawing up maps and graphs and making calculations as to how this dream world works. You're dreaming, man. Haven't you ever had a dream where you're being chased by a marshmallow man and you wake up and it's Thanksgiving dinner and you're the turkey on the table and for some reason your cousin is what? Huh? You know what I mean? So, you may want to talk know. to a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But you're absolutely right. I'm coming off of a off of a high from this movie. Like, depending on our conversation, going to skew my rating or point one decimal down or point one decimal up. Um, one more note I wanted to highlight was going to be uh, the performance from Chris O'Dowd. Um, I believe uh, he's popped up here and there in in random in random movies, but here as an uncle who has to take in a child who he's it's a child from his estranged brother. So they don't really have a connection. Uh, I mentioned their chemistry before early on in this review, but I just want to highlight again that uh, the steps he takes to become, a, you know, not the father figure to her, but at least a friend was, is so heartwarming. Um, I watched this and my heart just feels, you know, it feels good. I love the ideas that it expressed amongst its um, like pseudo families and, um, well, I mean, they don't spend a lot of time on it, but she does have a hilarious friend uh, named uh, Jamal who is in like every single club imaginable and they use him and he comes in, but he doesn't really do much except for make me laugh a couple of times. So that was an interesting character. Um, but beyond that, I had a lot of fun with this movie. I really did. By the time it does hit that final, its final scenes of what all of this journey led up to, I expected it to take the onward route, but it doesn't. And I like that it doesn't because it makes it different now. Um maybe you know what I'm speaking on. Maybe you don't. We can always discuss post-show. But yeah, by the time this film wrapped, uh, when we were at its ending, I thought, wow, like, you know, I, I did like the the turns that it took to get here. I will say, like, going back to Jason Momoa and Marla Barkley, they don't start off very fun. I kind of got their dynamic initially. It's just like, oh, you know, he wants to be left alone and she wants something, but it doesn't have to be from him. Like, they don't have really tied to them. But as the movie goes on, especially towards, like, the third act, I found, like, their, their chemistry really palpable and really fun. Uh, I'm glad you brought up Chris O'Dowd. He has at least one scene when he's talking to Nemo about uh, he, him and his dad's misadventures when they were kids. And I, I didn't tear up, but, like, I did find myself getting emotional about it. Like, there is an actual palpable kind of... There's a palpable gravitas that Chris O'Dowd can bring to the right material he's done it before he just isn't always given it which is kind of weird when he just you know pops up in like the starling or whatever um and kyle chandler pops up a couple times and he's fine uh he gets a couple of like really just nice sweet moments and i will say just quickly uh going back to the visuals uh i've seen people crit critique some of the cgi saying it's a bit too overly ambitious and netflix didn't really give them the budget and that's fair enough but i would counter that and mean like it's a dream it's supposed to look very hazy and incomplete so it, it was one of the few times where i've seen the visual effects and go that bird looks weird or that, you know, machine doesn't look right, but it's a dream. It's not really supposed to be. But again, that goes back to like some of my narrative critiques about like where the film kind of falls flat. So it's a movie that I appreciate for a lot of things and I did really enjoy for a certain amount of it. It's just where a lot of things didn't really coalesce for me. After watching this, after prepping the notes, I said, this is an eight. Eight. I love it. I am going to, I'm going to put all that power behind it. Um, Brandon, of course, sees my balloon head floating away and away. And away. He, <laughs> he grabs onto it and he's like, wait, Noah, there are actually things to this film that I need you to hear. So it is going to be a 7.9 for me. <laughs> but uh, just know that this film is a lot of fun. Um, if you're watching it with family, if you're checking it out with yourself, um, dreams are so much fun. And this film definitely takes, uh, takes advantage of that. Jason Momoa puts on a performance that really cements this idea of who this character can be and exist as in the same vein of Carrie's um, <laughs> Grinch in the same vein as Myers' Cat in the Hat, who I don't know if he has a name, but yes, uh, Slumberland is a wreck from me, and it's going to be a 7.9 out of 10 on my rating. Over to you, Brandon. See, I kind of respect that because, again, it, it's a family-friendly movie that knows it's family-friendly. At the end of the day, though, it's not really cohesive. It doesn't really have a true tone and idea to it. It's jumbling a lot of different things to me. This isn't like this isn't like you and me with like Chacha real smooth. Like we're not on complete. I see where you're coming from. And I genuinely do think 
it's a very enjoyable movie. So it's a six out of 10 for me. Like, again, Momoa is great. Marlo Barkley, I want to see what she does next. And Chris O'Dowd, you know, it's good to see him get more material. I didn't also mention uh, Pinar Toprak does the music, uh, and it kind of reincorporates uh, the Irish hymn, The Parting Glass, has that constant idea of remembrance and grief and where you're coming from that before. That's just a little detail I want to point out. But there's little things like that throughout the movie that I kind of latched on to. But as a whole, it kind of, it much like the Jason Moe character, kind of just flew off doing its own thing, and I had to hold on for dear life, and I just couldn't do it. Thank you so much for bringing up Cha Cha Real Smooth because I was thinking about that today when I watched the trailer for When You're Finished Saving the World, when you finish yes. saving the world. And um, I was reminded of that. So I wasn't reminded of our stark differences, though, for that film. So thank you for bringing up that, that rage in my heart once more. Yeah, go listen to that review if y'all are curious. <laughs> Uh, with that being said, we will move on to our final new release of the week. It's probably the most talked about outside of the Fablemans. Uh, another fairly awards contender. I've, I've seen some people pick it for certain things, and we'll uh, talk about when we end into the movie. Uh, Bones and All. This is the new movie from uh, Luca Guadagnino, a.k.a. the guy who made Call Me By Your Name, A Bigger Splash, starring Timothy Chalamet and Taylor Russell and Mark Rylance. Uh, and it's a movie about a lot of things. Noah, what is this movie? So, Marin. 18 years old, lives with her dad, and the two share a very quiet, unsuspecting life, at least when you look at it from the outside. But what's really going down? You see, Marin has a habit or a appetite for human flesh. She's no zombie, but uh, she can go in on a warm body. Um, after one too many incidents where she has you know, indulged on somebody, you know, whether suspecting or not. Um, she's abandoned by her father, who was her single parent, and he only leaves her with a cassette recording. Um, this is probably taking place like in the 70s, 80s. Brandon, maybe you'll correct me later. Um, but with, on believe, the cassette... So, sorry, I think it's mid-80s. Mid-80s. On the cassette... Uh, her father, having abandoned her, details her childhood and history with this condition or incessant behavior to just crave human flesh. Um, some details about her mother, who is pretty much out of the picture from day one. And that inclines Marin to embark on this journey cross-country. She's 18 years old, so she can tell everybody that she's an independent. And she goes on this journey to try and find where her mother is. So all she has is details surrounding her address. So she's just going to take a name, head over there and ask some questions about who she is, why she feels this way, and just really go on that kind of journey. On the journey, she meets two prevalent characters. Uh, she realizes that there are more to this, I'm going to say like cannibal community or like these people who eat other people. That's, that's simply what it is. Notably, there's two characters. There's going to be Mark Rylance, who plays Sully, um, a older gentleman who has he's not new to the trade of um, eating people. Like he has what's to, what's coined as like the smell or uh, I forget what they name it, but it's like the people with this affliction are able to smell others who have that same condition, like who they can, the cannibals can smell the cannibals people. Um, he has this old man charm to him, but Sully <laughs> like the old man charm, it borders on creepy every so often. So you really have to navigate whether you can, whether Marin is a person uh, who should completely trust Sully or keep moving on with her journey. Um, continuing on her journey, she meets Lee played by Timothy Chalamet uh, around the same age as her, not as um, 
not as focused on the rights and wrongs of his habit of eating people, more so just taking it day by day and kind of has this rock star attitude of the life that he lives is just going to be what it is. And he's not going to ask too many questions about it. Uh, Marin continues her journey, running into multiple characters cross country, uh, some cannibals, some not in efforts to meet her mother and ultimately understand like what this means for her. Uh, I think this is mostly a drama. Uh, there are parts of it that yes, are, you know, more on the thriller side. Uh, I believe this was pushed as like a romance piece, but I found that secondary to the overall, just like journey and adventure that Marin had to go on having been abandoned by her father and thrust into this new life by herself where she has to navigate um you know her flesh appetite and whatnot brandon i saw this movie first and then uh i threw it to you for a potential review on the on the show and you asked you know is it is it really that bad or like you know what can i expect going into it did you think that my warnings and my like my flags for for you were appropriate and what was watching it like Honestly, yeah, that, that was appropriate. And the way you pointed out was like, yeah, it gets graphic at times. Yeah, there are certainly horror tropes in there and there's certainly tension. But I really only found maybe one scene where I was full blown in a ball in my seat going, no, 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 no. Um, for as much as the cannibal thing is there, it's not the prevalent thing of the movie. And when you were talking about the marketing of it, when talking about the marketing of it, I do feel it's a bit more of a romance movie. Like it does focus a lot more on the sense of genuine connection, the idea of youth and revolt, the idea of trying to find someone who can possibly understand even just a facet of what you're going through. Um, and that's what kind of happens when we initially meet Sully, and then once we wind up meeting um, Lee and Timothy Chalamet. And I should also mention this is based on a book as well, written by uh, Camille DeAngelis, which is apparently very different. Like, I encourage you to go watch uh, Men of the Jedi's video that kind of breaks down a lot of the differences in there, and it's kind of fascinating. Um, as far as the movie in itself, you know, I, I, I want to quickly ask you, like, how familiar were, with, were you with uh, Guadagnino's other work, like Call Me By Your Name and stuff like that? Call me by your name. Um, scandals involving actors aside, <laughs> I I did like that film. I think watching it, I like it for the reasons that I like a lot of the heartbreaking gay stories, <laughs> right? Like you're like, oh, look at this romance. I mean, like, oh my God, again, ignoring like so many of the problems with that film. <laughs> Suspiria. I watched Suspiria with high hopes and maybe it was the runtime Maybe it was the entire ending sequence. Looking back at it, I mean, after I walked out of the theater, I think I hated it. But looking back, I'm kind of like, wow. No, exactly, right? Looking back, I go, damn, I think I kind of liked it, but I liked it in memory. I don't think I'll rewatch it for a long time. Um, But Mia Goth, hey, she shows up in Suspiria. I actually recommend you go check that out if you're a fan of X. We arrive at Bones and All. This movie doesn't take the traditional, I think, like, movie angles of pitting us a main character or like giving us a perfect hero to follow. I think, I think that Marin is um, for one Taylor Russell delivers a performance that absolutely erases the, <laughs> the memory that I had of her in escape room, which I'm very happy about because I think that Taylor Russell actually delivers a, a, a well performance here uh, following her. I knew that I was motivated for one because of the cannibalistic tendencies, because that's just action on the film. But for two, I don't know it. Maybe it's in, in the way that she speaks. You, you know, that she, um, she is, is existing in a world separate to her own. And like you say, searching for that connection. Um, is she desperate for it? Uh, not so much. Um, when we pit that up against a character like Lee, once he finds somebody who's just like him, it's easy to believe that, yeah, you two are the only ones in this world, um, at least from his side. Uh, it's a love story. It's it's a 
you can call it a tragedy. Um, I am curious as to what those bones and all book versus movie differences are, because that's just an interesting um, piece that I didn't even think to look at. But yeah, I think this film for actually it is very long. It is two hours and 11 minutes. It feels like three hours. There is a series of scenes in the beginning where Marion is alone. Um, I think she has not yet met Sully that I did find myself just asking questions of, okay, well, I need to know where this is heading because I'm kind of losing myself to the, the details that would have been filled with the book. Like this, this operates better when you're traveling the country with only one character as a book, but as a movie, I'm getting, I'm sorry, I was getting bored. Ranking it up against um, other work from Luca. Did you find that it held up against his, his catalog or did you find that it is different? I'll say this much. This is maybe the most interesting film that I've seen from them. Cause I've only seen call me by your name and I've seen a bigger splash and I really like a bigger splash. I like call me by your name. I think it's a good movie. I think there are great performances in it. I love Chisung. I love Sufjan Stevens's music. I don't love the movie as a whole and I haven't loved the movie for five years and I've you know, gotten the tail end of it and I know what it means. But this for, for all the imperfections that Bones and All has, and it has imperfections and I, I will probably get into them. It's a movie about a lot of really interesting things. And I'm glad you brought up the idea of, you know, found family in the sense of connection that Lee and Marin have, because neither one of them are really looking for relationships. Like both of them are kind of in their own space of, you know, Lee as a deserter and Marin kind of finding her own familial history and there's a contrast there between like these are two characters who probably should not be together and then find reasons and almost make up reasons to be together but they're so palpable together that you kind of can't help but root for them taylor russell like i've known since waves that she's a tremendous talent like if you have not seen it please go check it out she's phenomenal in it um and you're right there's so many great mannerisms to her there's such a great way that she carries herself and similarly with uh, Chalamet, he channels the very like skinny physique that he has into like when we first see him take down his first victim, and, and I was sure that when Marin sees him take down his first victim, he kind of has this like crawling mystique to him where like he's leaning into the idea of like he's he kind of acknowledges that he's not a normal human, quote unquote. And it brings to mind like the alienization of it. And he he kind of has to look to Marin to bring him back from that. Whereas Marin is looking to him as like he has been a part of this culture, unlike Sully, who, you know, is just kind of his own enigma. Who, by the way, and I, I will wrap up with this, Mark Rylance is creepy in this. Like, just so good in this. And it, just from his very first interaction where you see, you don't actually see him in his first interaction, he's hiding behind something, and then he just kind of pans out, and it's great. Um, but also he does a rendition of, like, Beautiful Brown Eyes by the Four Brothers that will probably remain in my nightmares for years to come. Like, every time he's on screen, he is just so unsettling, but there's also, like, just a split second of charm to him. I cannot say enough good things about his performance. He really, I won't say he saved the movie, but every time he was on screen, I was fascinated. There was a point in this film where I thought, oh, okay, I know what they're going to do. They're going to do a cross country. They're going to tell us a story about traveling cross country. We have these two lovers. Uh, it's going to be Lee and Marin. And along the way, we get these title cards that display every state that they're passing through. And I can't name the state exactly, but they do happen upon this, this forest uh, clearing where they set up camp. And they're joined by two, I think like the, the owners of the land. Couldn't really tell you the specifics. I'm sorry. However, um, of the two, one of them is, is another cannibal. They don't call each other that, do they? They just call each other like eaters. That, that's the term. They have eaters as the term. Yeah, eaters. And so only one of the two is an eater. They have a, uh, a campfire discussion between the two gentlemen, what their relationship was, having one person, uh, you know, actually commit the act of eating another human and his friend kind of just existing on the on the border of the community. Right. Because he yeah. 
he witnesses it and he enjoys it, is entertained maybe, it borders on like a fetish. And so I'm curious about what went into creating these scenes with these characters because that's why I go, oh, this film, I I like it because we're going to go into different states and see how very normal people that you can pluck out of the world can exist within this community and have these special interactions. Um, It doesn't exactly take that turn and that's okay for what the film achieves. But at that moment, I thought that I knew what it was doing. I was going to say, there is some discussion to be had about that David Gordon Green, by the way, those two guys are played by Michael Stuhlbarg, who was in Calling By Your Name, and David Gordon Green, who directed the Halloween movies. Um, And you're right. There's an interesting conversation there about like the idea of, the words coming to mind is cultural appropriation. Like David Gordon Green's character is not an eater. He just kind of goes along with it as seeing like this positive, and it disgusts Marin to her core of this idea of like, this is like me. Like, I can't do anything about this. This is this disgusting thing that I have to relegate myself to do on an occasion. And you're embracing it. Like, there's an idea of, there's an idea of like, again, you mentioned disturbing fetishization to it that like, I think Luca Guanino wants to address in there. But it's also one of the only times of world building that I really found interesting because the whole cannibal metaphor is really interesting. But, and I was very appreciative that they, that they didn't, you know, go full into, you know, tearing people apart and all that. But there is kind of a lack of investment in it. It's just kind of a thing that could be any kind of outcast or any kind of uh, marginalized community that it could be in there. And I like kind of what they try to do with it, but they're trying to do a lot of different things and not kind of focusing on what that world and what those people have to go through specifically. And when you get to those specific parts of being an eater, that's where the film becomes more of like, you know, it includes some of those horror elements. Um, this is about more than just being an eater. It is about those marginalized communities and how special you can feel when you meet someone, whether big or small in your whatever you want to call it, um, those special relationships, they feel special and then tenfold because of, because of how alone you may feel before you meet others. Um, when it, (laughs) the visuals for when they actually are eating people, I found to be really cool. Um, I am not like a sucker, sucker for gore. And this doesn't, I think exactly go that route. There's plenty of blood, but like Brandon says, there's no like ripping of somebody's like rib cage off, like snacking on their femur. You're not going to see that here. It's honestly like them taking a bite out of a, a corpse laying down um, and then rising like a wolf that has just ate a carcass. Um, Brandon, any uh, final notes here before we move on? I was going to quickly say two points. One, I think, you know, it goes back to that point of meandering structure to it all. Like the movie kind of feels like three in one. There's the point like before she meets Sully and Lee, there's the point in the middle that's the large chunk of the movie. And then there's a point in like the third of the movie where like we reach the end of what you think is the narrative catharsis. And then there's like 20, 25 more minutes of movie. Um, And it's not boring. Like it actually has one of my favorite scenes in the movie, but it has that thing of like, you're constantly wondering where it's going and not necessarily a good way. Like, when you are fully invested in it, it's about maybe an hour and 45, maybe an hour and 50 minutes of the screen time. And the other kind of chunks at the beginning and end feel like extra things. Uh, I do want to quickly say, just as far as the technical categories go, um, Arseni Kachaturan, I believe his name is, who is a cinematographer, he gets a lot of like really cool landscape shots. It gave me a lot of vibes of Nomadland and that kind of sense of how Chloe Zhao would shoot rural America. And specifically that idea of like how a non-American shoots America. Like this is an Italian director shooting 80s America and giving like a sense of uh, authenticity that isn't often seen with 80s period pieces that I thought was kind of an interesting choice. Um, and I do also want to mention uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score. Great. 
I love it. I love how it's so like Nick Cave, Warren Ellis, Americana guitar strings, but there's also just enough tinges of like, we're nine inch nails and here's a bass synth and like little musical things where I was just like, oh, that cue is coming back and like, oh, that sounds so pretty. And like, it completely embodies the characters. This isn't one of my favorite movies of the year, but that score might be. I was going to go 7.5, ah, bumping it down, 7.4. Um, okay. I think that what this film does, what this film does achieve is establishing um, a community for someone who believed that they were entirely alone after being abandoned by their family. Um, is there love story to be explored here? Yes. I should note though, that Timothy Chalamet is as a character of Lee, very much giving off uh, queer characteristics in my head. Canon Lee is a queer character. Well, um, they, they it, kind of, they kind of put that to the test when the whole carnival storyline, but they, they lead you to believe is this, is he that cynical or is he that evil to the point of his craving, like pushing him to do whatever to get his next meal? Do you know, he does have that kind of rock star mentality where anything goes. So that's what's going on in my head. Um, this movie, though long and like tiresome, I think, to do a rewatch, it is one that I am happy I have seen. Like I will walk away and I will tell people, yeah, it's a long movie and it feels like it, but it is a story. Like you get the beginnings of Marin living with her father, working through this would be normal life until an incident happens. And then being just pushed onto this cross country journey um, where she meets some eccentric characters. Um, and it does have an ending, which I admired about it. You know, you can pick this up and put it down in one sitting, have some thoughts about it, and then return to it. Maybe even explore the book. It honestly is being knocked down from a 7.5 to 7.4 as well, because it includes the Halloween ends director, uh, David Gordon Green. That is another reason why it's going to be brought down. Um, and that's going to be my rating for this movie. Thank you. I love how David Gordon Green has become your mortal enemy. <laughs> Until... So until we meet Gordon Green. So come on the podcast. Gladly. We'll have you. Um, it, it's funny because like the minute I finished this movie, I don't know how your third experience was. Mine was fairly quiet throughout. At the very end of the movie, there was a couple about like two seats in front of me. And, you know, it's directed by Luke Guadagnino. And all of a sudden I hear, I expletive F love that movie. And I just thought it was kind of hilarious. But it brings to mind that this is a very singular movie. It's a movie that despite being about a lot of things, it's a movie that if you love, you will love. And I have heard people explain their reasonings for loving it. And they're not wrong. Like, Timothy Chalamet is great. He's normally been great. But, like, Taylor Russell, again, go watch Wave. She's phenomenal. Mark Rylance, I would watch him in Supporting Actor after this. Like, I think he's genuinely fantastic in this. Um, and Lou Guadagnino, for what he is trying to do, is explore a lot of things about alienation and marginalization and specifically the idea of, you know, communities on the outskirt of the mainstream and what that does to you and what that sense of your self-hatred and self-worth does. It's doing a lot of things. The problem is the script can't really contain it. Um, narratively, it's going in a lot of different places. Thematically, it's going in a lot of different places. It doesn't always work with what the character is supposed to be, let alone their actual romantic interactions. Um, and just as a whole, it becomes very meandering, despite its very, very good elements. For me, it's a solid seven. I liked a lot about this. I really appreciated a lot of this. And again, as I said before, while I think Call Me By Your Name is a better movie and Bigger Splash is a better movie, this is maybe the most interesting film he's made before. And I would not be opposed to seeing Luca Guadagnino explore, you know, maybe not another cannibal movie, but like explore ideas like this more fleshed out in the future. I think he's totally up for it and I'm glad I saw it. And with that, that'll do it for episode 40 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning into this, uh, I guess, start of proper award season. Like, we're finally knee-deep in this, so expect this uh, for a little while. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. 
Follow our TikTok accounts at Plot Devices Podcast for, again, quick hits and other things that we upload them. And if you want to follow the show, that's just Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our RSS feed at Plot Devices. Go follow us on there and leave us a review and a like on there. It helps us, you know, it helps get us exposed to more audiences. And it hopefully lets us know what you guys think we should change about this. You can obviously comment on those social media feeds as well. I want to thank my normal co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, where can people find you online? What are you enjoying nowadays? And uh, yeah, how you doing? Check me out on Twitter at Noah's Plotting. And I just started streaming again. So I'm posting um, some videos when I have fun on Apex Legends with my friends. We're playing. Um, but you can watch my Twitch channel at Annihilation. Um that's kind of hard to spell, but I'm sure you'll figure it out. It's Noah. It's Annihilation, but you put Noah in the middle of it. You know what I mean? What can I say? I'm a creative. And I am busying myself these days with plenty of gaming, okay? We have two big titles that I am experiencing right now. It is God of War Ragnarok. If you've already finished the game, keep your demons out of my general column. You will be in the requested column, and I will accept it when I am done and ready to accept them. And then the second game, I haven't started it yet, but I am absolutely going to. It is Callisto Protocol. Sort of Dead Space, sort of like Event Horizon. I cannot wait to experience that story. Um, and that's what's really drawing me towards these video games right now is the storytelling behind it. And boy, oh man, oh boy, I cannot wait to uh, dive right in back into those gamings. I keep seeing ads for Callisto Protocol. It sounds fascinating. You'll have to let me know how that is. You guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Those are the accounts. Uh, you can follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music on Twitter and Instagram. Our debut single, Wish, is, of course, out on platforms already right now. We're working on other stuff. And just stay tuned to those accounts for more. And again, all those links will be down in the description below. Go follow us there and let us know what you think. So thank you again so much for tuning in to episode 40 of Plot Devices. My name is Brandon King. That has been Noah Guzman. This has been Plot Devices. And we'll catch you guys next time.